Welcome to AMDA On The Go, your gateway to expert discussions, journal article reviews, and innovations in post-acute and long-term care. AMDA On The Go is a presentation of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now, here's our host for AMDA on the go, Dr. Diane Sanders-Cepeda. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Diane Sanders, and today we're going to be talking about the intersection of structural racism, ageism, and healthcare. And we're pulling from we're pulling from the paper from the Journal of the American Geriatric Society, recently published, titled "Exploring the Intersection of Structural Racism and Ageism in Healthcare." As many of you may be aware. Structural racism refers to the ongoing historical and long-term reproduction of the racialized structure of our society through a combination of all forms of racism. Ageism refers to the attitudes toward older people, old age and aging itself, and those discriminatory practices against older adults and institutional practices and policies that perpetuate stereotypes about older adults. And then one other definition I want you to know as we enter into this conversation is around intersectionality. Intersectionality is the interconnected nature of social categorizations such as race, class, and gender as they apply to a given individual or group regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. I would like you to join me as we um, have this conversation with doctors Timothy Farrell, Ramona Rose, and Jasmine Travers. And I would like to go ahead and introduce our panel, starting with Jasmine, if you would introduce yourself. Sure. Hi, everyone. And thank you for having me. It's just a pleasure to be with such an esteemed panel. My name is Jasmine Travers. I am an assistant professor and health services researcher at New York University Roy Myers College of Nursing. And my work focuses on improving long-term care delivery for older adults with an equity lens. I also focus on workforce issues. Thank you. Thank you. Ramona? Hi, my name is Ramona Rhodes. I am a geriatrician, hospice and palliative medicine physician, and health services researcher um, who has an interest in racial and ethnic disparities in older adults and those at the end of life. Thank you, Ramona. Tim? Hi, thanks so much for the opportunity to participate. Um, I'm Tim Farrell. I'm a professor of medicine and geriatrician at the University of Utah School of Medicine where I serve as the Associate Chief for Age-Friendly Care for our geriatrics division. And I also serve as co-chair of the American Geriatric Society Ethics Committee, where we've been addressing uh, issues such as those we'll discuss today. So thanks so much for having me. Thank you all. And um, I, I thank you for 
being here with us. I started bugging Tim pretty early in the the month to uh, once I read this article at Jags. And to everyone who's listening, I just want to make sure that you all understand that we're all learning together. Um, I know this is a sensitive topic, and we want to make sure that we are engaging um, not only our panel, but if you have any questions after listening to this, please do not hesitate to ask. We want to make sure that everyone is learning together, that we're all supporting each other. So, as I was saying, I really found um, the article of Jack's in the Journal of American Geriatric Society to be very interesting, and I Tim, I was harassing you to to see if we could get something together. I'm very happy to to be here at this moment. And I want to know that as we try to understand this intersection of structural racism and ageism, what are those determining factors that we see with these overlapping challenges? And I'm going to give it to you first, Tim, but I want to hear from everyone. Yeah, so I think this is such a um uh, a complex and multifaceted um, issue. And I think one of the, the factors that uh, I like to think about, at least with ageism starting there, would be the fact that this is such an insidious and in, in some ways invisible-ism that um, is, is sort of omnipresent, um, but something that we just sort of take for granted. So I'll give you an example. I was in the grocery store looking for a birthday card the other day, right? And what do I see but a number of birthday cards that feature uh, older adults, generally quite frail, um, and in terms of 4Ms with limited mobility and sort of this stereotype, that's not the patient that I'm seeing in my geriatrics clinic. In fact, the other day I was working with a resident who uh, said, well, when are we going to start seeing some older adults? And I said, well, we are seeing older adults. We're, we, you know, we were seeing uh, 75, 85, sometimes 95-year-old patients who were aging quite successfully, much different than what we see on those birthday cards in the in the grocery store. So I think one of the key points that comes out in the uh, JAGS paper is this concept of heterogeneity, uh, heterogeneity of the older adult population. And, you know, we saw this during um, COVID with sort of the resource allocation frameworks, some of which in, in some states, you know, sort of basically said, if you're older, you don't, you're not entitled to resources. So that's sort of a, a macro level, um, sort of age dependent, uh, uh, ages, ageism that we see. Um, but we also see this every day. And I think this gets to sort of the interactions we have with our patients, our staff, our colleagues. Um, I think one of the first steps to an age friendly health system is really addressing ageism because if you don't get to the embedded ageism that's kind of baked in, then you can't really find out what matters most to a patient because that's it's sort of interfering with that. And then you sort of layer on uh, structural racism and you have a bit of a perfect storm where unfortunately you have what we call in, in the paper a double disadvantage. And, um, and hopefully we can discuss that today. Thank you, Ramona those determining factors, what pops up in your mind? Um, so I agree totally with what Tennis said about ageism and it being an ism that many people don't think about um, or give um, credence to. Uh, when I was a resident, 
and I was exploring opportunities after residency. And I told people that I was planning to go into geriatrics and I was going to do a geriatric fellowship. You know, some people said, oh, you're doing that, the one-year clinical fellowship, and then you're going to do, you're going to go into something else, right? You're, And I would say, no, I'm going into geriatrics. And then some people would say, oh, goodness, you're a glutton for punishment if you're going to be taking care of older adults. Well, they said old people. <laughs> I rephrased to older adults. Um, so I definitely agree with that. And I, I definitely think that... Um, Learning more about intersectionality as it relates to racism and ageism and the health outcomes, the deleterious outcomes that are a consequence of those two intersections or those two um, isms intersecting is important. And again, something that a lot of people don't realize or don't recognize. So um, I'm really appreciative for this opportunity to discuss the article and all of the things that it entails. Thank you. Jasmine, any thoughts from you? Sure, and I, I too am in agreement with what was shared and just kind of to add to that, just thinking about how um, racism and ageism doesn't feel as if it's actually a part of our society among many people, which prevents us from actually making um, changes that we need to make. So people themselves or people seeing themselves as racist or people seeing themselves as ageist um, and how accepting we are of racism and ageism. So I, I, I saw, I read, I was reading on the World Health Organization website the other day, and they said that globally, one out of two people are ageist against older people, which that's that's a significant number. But at the same time, we move in a way that that's acceptable um, in ways that we are ageist against other people. And the same thing with racism and how it manifests, especially when thinking about structural racism. No one wants to see themselves as a racist. Um, there's a lot of negative connotation to that. So with that, it makes it harder for us to actually make the changes that need to be made when we talk about structural racism, for example, and ageism and kind of what is at the root causes of um, these issues. That's what I would add to the conversation when thinking about uh, those determining factors. Yeah, I, I agree. I think those um, that that is a. a challenge in having this conversation, the fact that we are at a point where we haven't yet recognized all of these, the nuances around structural racism and ageism. Um, and I'm sure our audience would agree that we're still trying to understand what intersectionality is. Can, and I'm going to tap Ramona first, can you just maybe describe some of those nuances um, around structural race, racism and ageism as it relates to healthcare? And, possibly even walk us through what a patient's journey may be as they're navigating the healthcare system with these overlapping challenges. So when ageism and racism collide um, or intersect, I'm gonna say collide, um, uh, there are lots of um, poor health outcomes that can uh, be a product of that intersection. Um, there's research that shows that 
um, perceived racism or when a, a patient, an older adult, perceives that they are uh, being discriminated against or experiencing racism, that can result in delayed and foregone care. We all know about uh, being excluded from medical research. Um, and then there are definitely different um, research studies that have shown that there are adverse outcomes relative to um, um, including death and disability and certainly morbidity and mortality. We saw that um, particularly um, most relevant or most recently um, with the COVID-19 pan pandemic. Um, so um, pa patients who are um, members of racially and ethnically minoritized groups um, throughout their life course experience can experience racism. And that racism that they experience can cause them to have stress. Um, it can cause them to have all sorts of um, issues. Um, and when you get older, um, you can also have um, poor health outcomes just related to age. So imagine having an older adult who has experienced racism his or her throughout his or her life course. Um, and those poor outcomes that they could experience as an older adult are just potentiated by the fact that they have experienced racism throughout their, their lifetime. Jasmine, do you know any of, of any examples that you could also share? Because I'm just curious. I, I think of, when I think of this, I think of my family and those challenges that we have of getting care into the home or getting some things in the, the expectation that nothing's ever going to change. So I'm just curious, any anything to share on your end, Jasmine? Sure. So I just think about um, an example related to like the uh, American Disabilities Act, which requires uh, that services and supports for people living with disabilities, many of which who are older adults, um, that they have these services and supports to remain in a home um, and not be subjected to a nursing home placement, for example. But just thinking about the number of older adults in general who are not able to access services and supports that allow for them to live in the home um, as they would desire. And then especially when thinking about how um, individuals of minoritized backgrounds, racial and ethnic minoritized backgrounds, for example, are even at more of a disadvantage in being able to access these types of services and support. So one example I'll give is like assisted living. Um, so there is a decrease, there's not a large availability of assisted living uh, facilities in general, and even a decreased number of assisted living facilities in geographical areas where there are high proportions of Black older adults. So they're not able to access these, um, these settings for care, for one thing. And then at the same time, then uh, there are barriers when it comes to finances, where a lot of assisted living, uh, you have to pay through private um, funding, as opposed to being able to pay for that care with Medicaid. So that's an example of uh, where you see that intersection of age and um, race come into play. And then with that, then you see increased um, placements uh, or necessary placements into nursing homes where uh, many Black and Latino older adults we've seen in research studies, they 
talk about that role of choice and not being um, a part of that choice when it comes to long-term care and being forced or um, someone making the decision for them to enter a nursing home uh, uh, setting as opposed to being a part of that decision where white older adults are more likely to say that they're a part of the decision where they are um, receiving their long-term care. And with that, we just think about the consequences of not being a part of a decision, right? That it kind of um, uh, reflects kind of the trust that you're going to have in that setting of care and those people providing that care when to begin with, you didn't um, feel like you were a part of the decision to even receive that care in that setting. Yes. It sounds to me sort of the the concept that I think, Tim, you hinted upon it um, earlier, that double jeopardy, that double disadvantage. Tim, can you share more about that hypothesis and um, how you think it interplays with what we're talking with the the, the structural racism and, and um, ageism overlap? Sure, happy to. So there are various um, hypotheses. Um, you know, there's one called the weathering hypothesis, for example. But I think you know one common feature is is that um, sort of these um, what we've talked about in terms of these adverse effects of these two isms sort of colliding uh, results in real real consequences uh, in terms of health outcomes. And I think Ramona mentioned sort of delayed and, and foregone care. I also wanted to mention another aspect that I think comes into play with both ageism and racism colliding in this way. And I think this was mentioned a little bit earlier, but I think it's really important to mention again that this sort of assumption that older people and particularly um, uh, you know, those from disadvantaged backgrounds are, are sort of unable to participate in, in important decisions. And that that ranges, Ramona mentioned research, but I think it also impacts sort of um, sort of day-to-day decision-making. So the conversation that you have in the uh, exam room about um, an older adult's uh, preferences for where they're going to live or who they're going to associate with or what what's going to happen uh, with their finances, um, all these sorts of things, um, you know, I've, I've had, had to sort of train um, uh, students um, in sort of recognizing that, you know, things as simple as as not addressing an older adult um, at all, or if they do address them, addressing them in sort of a pejorative way, like honey or sweetie. Um, and, and so that that can be deeply, um, deeply uh, distressing for an older person to, to feel that they're they're not even being um, considered in a discussion that's about supposedly about them. And, and so um, this just occurs on so many different levels among very well-intentioned people, you know, people who are healthcare professionals who really want to help. It's so tempting not to address um that older person directly. And so um, so this disadvantage just happens in so many uh, different ways and different layers. So I'm wondering when we're thinking about that double disadvantage and even that weathering hypothesis, which I believe is that that suggests that that early declines in health observed in aging um, minorities are the result of that re- repeated exposure to social or economic adversities. Um, I'm just wondering, how do we 
put action around addressing these items? You know, what, what does that action plan look like? May I just begin to respond to that with one one area? And I did mention um, sort of uh, focusing on getting our own house in order, if you will, in terms of uh, healthcare. And one of the recommendations that we make in the paper uh, has to do with education and training and recognizing that um, we're not doing a great job overall in having the healthcare workforce that represents and looks like the population that we serve. Um, this is also manifest in the way that um, geriatric specific training is uh, not uniformly available uh, in um, medical schools. Uh, and there's only a few uh, residency programs that make this part of their required training. So we shouldn't really be surprised um, that we're not um, uh, kind of using best practices in this area when when we're not really exposing folks. And it's, it's really not adequate, as we say in the paper, just to say, well, you're going to be on a rotation where there's a bunch of older people. Therefore, you're going to learn geriatrics. It actually has shown that that's not effective. It has to be much more intentional. So there are workforce uh, training needs, and those, I think, align with larger uh, policy uh, considerations in terms of how we um, best use those precious uh, GME dollars that we have. And that's just within healthcare. Um, but we're sort of a microcosm of society. And so to a certain extent, we sort of reflect the ageism and racism that's in society. But we also have a responsibility, I think, to look inward and try to oppose those isms um, and therefore make society better as a whole. It's interesting. I wonder, and Jasmine, I, I want to tap you. How do we change that the mindset? Um, how do we begin that education um, uh, of our future staff and providers and clinical leaders? You know, and just thinking about what Tim added, I feel like there has to be a paradigm shift. How do we get there? So I think we have to understand, we have to increase our understanding of how structural racism, ageism manifests. We really do. Um, you know, we have to kind of understand our privileges and how that affects others. Um, and then we can start to peel back these layers uh, that have perpetuated um, racism and ageism for so long, these structures, um, and these structural factors that have done so. So that's what I, the first thing that we need to do. We need to be open um, in kind of identifying what that looks like and um, understanding, again, what, um, you know, just structural racism and ageism is to begin with um, and how we might be perpetuating that. Um, with that, as Tim was talking about education and training, and um, the, and also the paper talks about increasing the diversity of, of the people who are in healthcare professions and, and such, I would say also thinking about increasing the diversity of people who are in leadership positions, um, ensuring like what was said in the paper is that you know people who are in these positions are reflective of the populations that are being served and we need to really think about you know the populations that are being served of course like the um, the racial and ethnic backgrounds and some of those other things that we uh, that was talked about with regards to um, gender and sexuality for example so that we can 
um, better understand, you know, where are our blind spots at? What are we not seeing? What are we not, um, you know, considering when it comes to developing these policies and practices or, or breaking down policies and practices that have perpetuated racism and ageism for so long? Because it's going to be hard to do that if we don't have the appropriate people at the table to be able to allow us to better understand where we've been going wrong. Uh, and, I, and I think that's important too, that second step of saying, okay, who needs to be at the table that is not at the table so that we can make important um, changes. And then the third thing I would say is, you know, requiring this education and training, of course, but how do we make um, institutions and organizations and um, um, uh, universities accountable for um, not only the education and training that they provide and what Tim was saying was this intentional piece about it, making sure that it's actually making a difference and the differences that we want to see, you know? So um, with that accountability, how are we measuring and assessing, you know, changes in these areas when, when it comes to outcomes with, for individuals for older adults who have experienced poor outcomes as a result of racism and ageism, how are we assessing these changes that we're um, implementing and then now holding um, individuals accountable for, you know, positive changes versus negative changes. Uh, so that's kind of what I would say to really approach um, being able to make change in these areas. Thank you for that. I, I'm I'm wondering and thinking about how we do those assessments. Um, the paper, uh, and I'm going to address this to Ramona, talked a lot about social determinants of health and that that added weight on the the intersection of racism and ageism. Can you speak to that, Ramona, and and, and describe that impact for us? So um, I, I think we have to start by kind of defining what social determinants of health are because not everyone is familiar with them. Um, but as as we know here on the panel, um, social determinants of health are various entities within a person's being or their environment um, or their network that help and can influence their health outcomes. So their education, their access to education, their access to healthcare, their neighborhood and their environment, um, their social support systems and their economic stability. And if they do have those things in place, then the likelihood is that they will have um, better health outcomes. Or if they are deficient in certain areas, the likelihood is that they could have um, poor health outcomes. Um, it could influence morbidity. It can influence mortality. Um, it can influence functional status for older adults. Um, it can influence all sorts of aspects of their care. Um, as I mentioned, I do research in um, end-of-life care and disparities in end-of-life care. It can even influence the quality of care that they receive at the end of their lives. So um, I think that knowing social determinants of health, knowing what they are and knowing how they can influence um, various health outcomes for patients, particularly older adult patients, um, is very important. Um, and on top of that, we know that there are disparities that exist in terms of social determinants of health um, from access to health care, um, 
uh, for um, patients who are racially and ethnically minoritized who live in neighborhoods that have food deserts, um, um, for patients who have um, limited access to education and quality of education. So all of those things can certainly influence that. I do want to say, however, we focus a lot on um, racially and ethnically minoritized patients, including older adults and what they don't have. That doesn't necessarily, um, that is not the only contributor to um, disparities. Um, we oftentimes um, limited to socioeconomic status. Um, that is not the only contributor to disparities. Um, and a lot of people try to make themselves feel more comfortable with talking about disparities by saying that disparities exist because people are poor. Um, disparities exist for a variety of different reasons, including structural racism. That's why our frameworks like this, papers like this are so important um, because as Jasmine mentioned, we have to first understand what structural racism is. We have to identify it, we have to recognize it, and we have to put um, programs, policies, et cetera, in place um, that reduce it. Um, so that was a very long answer <laughs> uh, with regard to the influence of social determinants of health on the intersection of ageism and racism, but I thought that it was very important to mention because people often lose sight of the fact that um, disparities exist not only because of socioeconomic status, but for a variety of different reasons. No, I think it was a great um, answer. Definitely not too long. It feels like there's not a, we, we could talk about this probably for hours, but to your point, and I think um, what was raised in the, the paper as well, we have, there are implicit biases that exist um, in in our education to a point that Tim um, raised earlier, and I believe Jasmine um, um, also added to, there are in in the paper you you spoke of the the race correction, and I know we've spoken many a times on that in the um, post acute long term care society. So, can you uh, expand upon that? And maybe I'll open this up to. Uh, Jasmine first, and and then everyone can can add in. I'm just curious. We we see so many of these the challenges, you know, around those implicit biases and the way a person may go and present to a a physician's office or um in the healthcare system, and there there are just these items that they don't even realize, saying that they may not be as sick as they feel because you know there's that race correction element to it. Right, so part of the definition of uh, structural racism is that it's a systemic form of oppression against people, specific racial and age groups. And um, or specifically just related to structural racism, just race. But when thinking about what Ramona said, and I, I'm glad that she brought that up uh, with regards to how disparities occur, and it's not just specific to socioeconomic status and such, but also um, because of reasons related to implicit biases um, that end up being very harmful to older adults and people of um, racial and ethnic minoritized backgrounds, for example. So I, 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 I'll give an example related to 
just access to preventative care when it comes to vaccinations, for example, or um, even like uh, we've seen examples related to palliative care because of assumptions that we might have or biases. So if I were going, uh, if I was, because my research is in nursing homes, if I were giving influenza vaccinations um, for older adults in that setting, I might see, or a staff member might give a hard recommendation for an influenza vaccination to a white resident where if a white resident said, no, I don't want the vaccination, they say, well, it's really good for you. This is um, how effective it is. And this is how it will support you in your care. So they start to give you education behind it, um, where then the white resident might then say, oh, okay, I will get the vaccination. But then when it comes to a black resident, um, that same staff member, um, might not respond to that resident the same way they responded to the white resident if that black resident were to refuse the vaccination. They might just leave it as that, not give them that hard, hard recommendation. They, they might say, you know, um, I have the influence vaccination. Do you want it? Uh, or you may, may, may think about getting it. And they say no, and then that's it. Um, so just kind of thinking about the biases that may that staff member may hold because they may say, well, you know, black people don't, um, don't trust vaccinations anyways. So I'm not going to really go into it too much, but just as the harms that we're doing when we are allowing our biases to play a role in how we are delivering care. And we see this in, in many other areas too. And just kind of thinking about race and what was said, um, brought up in the paper as race being the social construct. So it's what it's however the person perceives them to be, because at the same time, although, you know, I might say, a person might say that, um, they're, they're white or, or they're this or they're that. It's, it's what they're presenting as and that's how they're treated. Uh, so that's something to also um, consider and see how that actually plays out in the healthcare setting and how individuals are treated. Yeah, I think you bring up a really good um, point and it, it goes back to the point that um, Tim, you made about how are we educating our future staff? What are we doing to make sure we are uh, teaching everyone about these isms, the visible ism of ageism and um, the often present um, ism of racism? And, you know, I will just confess that one of my coping mechanisms to deal with all of this has been like to be extremely <laughs> hopeful that change will happen. As I was reading this paper, that that line, the promise of a just healthcare system stayed with me. And I would, as we are coming to a close, would really love to hear each of your perspective of, of what a that promises of a just healthcare system. And Tim, I'm gonna start with you. Sure. And I think, you know, the promise of a just healthcare system is sort of the, the North Star here that is, is where uh, these efforts really should be aligned. Um, and I mentioned earlier, sort of the, you know, at the macro level, these resource allocation frameworks, um, there's a, a really good place to start, right? There's, from an ethical standpoint, this is where uh, justice and, you know, 
those ethical principles sort of um, really come into play. But I do think it's those day-to-day -day interactions um, where I think we're going to see sort of um, a structural kind of tectonic shift that sort of aligns with the policy. So, so I think it's really the everyday way we greet patients, the way we treat each other, and making sure also that we call this out when we see it and not being shy uh, about it. And we may have to call it out in our patients. We may have to call it out in our colleagues. And that's all necessary in order to, to make this vision of a just healthcare system a reality. Thank you, Ramona, the just health care system. So when I think of um, a just healthcare system, I think about the workforce. Um, and I harp on um, diversity or increasing diversity amongst the healthcare workforce all the time. Um, and I think that uh, when I talk about diversification of the healthcare workforce, I think about it from a three-pronged or multi-pronged approach. Coming from ac academic medicine, um, I'm used to seeing educational efforts and clinical efforts and research efforts. Um, and I think that we uh, need to diversify or help to increase diversity amongst our learners, meaning medical students, meaning students in graduate school, um, residents, um, faculty um, who are teaching um, these learners. Um, I think about um, diversifying the workforce in terms of research. We often talk about you know, increasing our numbers of research participants. I think that one way to do that or one effort that should also be made is to increase diversity amongst researchers. Um, and I think that in terms of the clinical realm, we increase our uh, educational efforts by increasing numbers of students or learners or trainees, then the clinical um, endeavor to uh, diversify the clinical workforce um, will come. But I think that the only way that we will be able to address issues in terms of disparities with regard to research, mistrust in the healthcare system, um, and those things that also contribute to overall healthcare disparities would be to diversify the workforce. And that is what a just healthcare system looks like to me. Thank you. Jasmine, you want to weigh in on the just healthcare system? Sure. So for me, when I envision a just healthcare system, I see it as every individual, no matter their background, their creed, their socioeconomic status, where they live, uh, their education, uh, their race, ethnicity, religion, language, that they have an equitable and fair opportunity to receive um, quality health care. And that includes um, uh, those who are caring for these individuals across uh, disciplines. Um, so to get there, what does that look like? I, I would, again, just think about like um, us actively, continuously um, and intentionally um, striving to dismantle these structures and, and policies and practices and programs that are in place that are not allowing us to do so. So really reflecting on, you know, 
what is it, whether it is in the education system or in the actual healthcare system that is not allowing us, or it, or if it's part of um, the federal system um, when thinking about funders of, of healthcare um, or state systems, um, but you know, what is it that we need to to dismantle, to change, um, to get us there? And I, I think if you know each of these different um, entities would actively do that and, and make a commitment to moving forward in this area, we would be able to start to really um, make change in this area. Um, so just the little things like what what can what can we do? And, and just kind of going back to just the research aspect of it, um, you know, we're starting to see journals you know, making sure that um, you know that there's more work that is being done on health equity, and but also scrutinizing how we're going into the health equity space, and are we actually including participants that are reflective of the health equity objective? For example, what is what do these research teams look like? Uh, for example, when it comes to funders, you know, funding more research in this area, and also. Um, holding the investigators accountable for the research teams that they are um, developing and how they're engaging with the communities and intentional engagement. So just little things that we start to do like this um, in whatever area, whatever entity that you're a part of, what can we do to change, you know, the ways that things have always been done, but has been so harmful um, to so many groups is, is important to start to be able to create this just healthcare system. So I think like what was said in the paper, us really all working together um, to do this and continuously, it's not gonna be something that's done overnight and it's not gonna be done um, at one point in time and we never have to look back and we have to continuously and actively work um, in, the, in this area to make change. Thank you all for being here and participating. I feel that the more conversations we have, the closer we get to that just healthcare system. And to everyone who's listening, we will include an attachment to our DEI glossary, as well as the attachment for the paper exploring the intersection of structural racism and ageism in healthcare. Thank you. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast. Mm-hmm.